Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. I'd like to welcome Isla Byrne to the podcast today. She is the co-founder and chief marketing and innovation officer at Parch Spirits Company. She is a successful multi-brand creator and beverage innovator with a passion for the future of holistic drinking. She has led innovation strategy and ideation for Diego North America for five years. Her strategic recommendations on drinking better led to a shift in the global business vision for Diego to address the low and no opportunities. In 2019, she was named by Forbes as one of the women running the liquor world. She has over 15 years of international marketing innovation expertise and an FE winning creative force with strong cultural acumen and a passionate desire to improve the world through sustainable ideas. And here to talk about her brand, Parch. Welcome, Isla. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Darshan. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat today. I'm going to assume that you didn't grow up with uh, liquor all your life and that you probably had a few aha moments that put you at the doorstep of the liquor industry. And I'm curious, how did you come to be one aha moments to get there and then also be labeled a woman running the liquor world? Yeah, it's quite a title. I mean, actually, I probably didn't grow up with liquor, but I am Irish originally. And actually, my uncle worked for Guinness pretty much his whole life. And I remember him coming home in the early days when they had just created the widget. And I remember, and he worked in the African markets, actually, in Eastern African markets. And he came home with this can. I mean, this is probably in the 80s and showed us how this widget technology worked. And even as a child, I thought it was pretty cool, this foaming liquid. Don't think I understood alcohol at that stage when I was very young, but it was cool, this technology. And then later on, I discovered Bailey's, another Irish famous cream. My grandmother used to drink that a lot. And I discovered that as a, a young kid. When I remember finding her little sherry glasses around, you know, in the kitchen after she had left minding us and tasting the cream because it looked like milk. I was like, what's my granny drinking? And it was this vanilla cream. It was delicious. I was like licking it, getting my finger in the bottom of the cup. So in that way, I guess I was surrounded by alcohol. You never know where these paths are going to bring you. And you take these opportunities that come. I lived in Ireland. I'm very aware of drink culture there. I then had an opportunity to go to Australia. And that changed my perspective on many things. It was an amazing experience. But I remember thinking about how they engage with alcohol was a bit more fun and foody. My first time experiencing dim sum for brunch, it was BYOB. So you could bring your wine. It was very little corkage fee, if at all. And I was with kind of people in their early 20s and they're we all drinking wine and eating dim sum. And it was this really interesting foodie culture that I'd never been exposed to with wine. My wine experience growing up had been going to Europe and going to the vineyards. And actually there, which has still stood and inform me in my kind of approach to moderation now, having wine at dinner tables, lunch tables, all day gatherings was a cross-generational thing. It was not not that they were encouraging kids to drink wine, but it wasn't hidden. And I think that's definitely part of shame around alcohol. In Europe, it's very much part of the culinary experience. And we would go to the wineries with my parents. And actually there they had a wine for children, which sounds really kind of crazy, but it was a 3% alcohol wine for kind of teenagers, I guess, if you will. 
And so you'd sip this very sweet liquid under guidance of your parents. And you knew alcohol wasn't something that you drank on your own. But it was just interesting how different cultures approach permissibility and education rather than kind of sneaking off and drinking a bottle of vodka with your teenage friends in, you know, the back lane, which which happens as well. So all those things kind of laddered up to a what became my career in alcohol and building brands. And I think that's what helps someone have be in touch with consumers and understand trends as having a, a worldview and observing and questioning how things have changed over time. And that's what insights really are. They are those moments that you're unpicking the why behind certain things happening. And I've always been curious about consumers, fascinated by culture and cultural shifts and how different communities, different types of people engage with, in my world, alcohol or adult beverages. Yeah, I can tell. I think uh, what's made a difference for you in being successful in this industry is you have combined your love and interest in the spirits, but also tying it to consumer behavior and trying to stay ahead of the curve. How do you manage to do that? How are you gathering consumer insights? Obviously, you brands do that stuff, but I think you do it also on your own. So I'm curious, how are you doing it? And what are the things you've seen that really you look for on a regular basis to give you that extra edge of insight? I think constant curiosity and observation whether it's interior design or menu design or observing how people are engaging over rituals, whether it's glassware, whether it's watching certain shows on TV and how they're incorporating food and snacking. I'm just constantly interested in the F&B space, so the food and beverage space overall. Also changes in the beauty industry and interior design, as I mentioned. They all come together. So For me, in developing certain products around botanicals, I definitely observed that first in the beauty and wellness space. And there wasn't much botanicals in the food category, actually. And when I created Kettle One Botanicals, it was really learning from the beauty wellness industry. And actually, there was one product, particularly a face serum, that was kind of the core inspiration of that and also candle, the candle culture. So I, I look at those kind of things. From design perspective and the role of plants, I look at hotel interiors and housing interior magazines to see, you know, there was a lot for about a decade of what I call the Brooklyn aesthetic. It was like reclaimed wood, Edison light bulbs, and it started in Brooklyn, but then it quickly expanded to Berlin, Tokyo, Copenhagen. Everyone had the same aesthetic. So I'm curious about why those things connect to people. And that was really looking to the past. But what's been happening now in design is very much white, clean, a little Scandinavian, a little Japanese or that Japandi kind of aesthetic, but really plants. The pervasiveness of plant culture has been really amazing. And that is something I'm personally very interested in, but plant alternatives, plant-based products. And, you know, with Parch, my new beverage, it's really about desert botanicals. So it's always trying to see what's coming next. So this idea of being back in touch with the outdoors, bringing the outdoors in after COVID, we were so locked inside. And the idea of nature and the bounty and health restoration that can come from being in the outdoors. You see these restaurants, lobbies, foyers. Actually, I just went by the Google building, new Google building in Manhattan that's about to open is covered in plants on the outside, the idea of living buildings. So conversations about the biome that really come from first food culture, probiotic culture, then beauty culture, and then into beverages as well. So I'm inspired by the intersection of those trends. So you have to be constantly curious, asking questions. The observing is, you know, I'm fortunate enough to live in a city and a neighborhood in Brooklyn that is very diverse, is so entrepreneurial, it's constantly changing. And it's 
infused with so many cultures and flavors. So I enjoy going out. I enjoy seeing what new things are coming on menus, what ingredients are trending. I mean, I love Middle Eastern cooking. And in the UK, where my sister lives, I used to live there, you know, you see a lot of that. And you see the impact of Adelangi as one chef who over a decade has changed what's in people's pantries. So I'm obsessed with halloumi cheese. It's really expensive in New York. It's not that expensive in, in Dublin. The impact of halloumi is amazing and can go back to Adelangi and what he did like a decade ago or things like pomegranate molasses. So I look at all those things and then understanding the consumer demographics in the US particularly, their palate changing, how our ritual is changing, how is entertaining changing and socializing. And that's kind of, it all goes together into my brain and, and it kind of percolates. And if I'm working on existing brands, it's really understanding what the brand stands for today and what are their strategic challenges for the future. Because a brand is something that has to be nurtured and you've got to be very careful with that before innovating too far away from its core essence. I think it's interesting what you just said embodied what I've often thought insights are, which is really taking multiple things, not just an observation or a fact, but multiple factors, trends and things. And I think what's interesting, what you're saying is you're going to see their convergence. It may not happen, but you're starting to see there's, there's things kind of pointing to this convergence. So I'm curious, what is this convergence you're seeing with the botanicals and everything? Because I think you're definitely onto something. I can see you're actually envisioning some greater convergence happening even further down the line. And what's driving it? Well, the biggest space that we're seeing right now, and we've been observing it for a while, but you take these life-changing global shifts and the pandemic was one of those. We're seeing, seeing just such an exploration and curiosity and interest and premiumness on health and wellness and a questioning of what rituals that we've been involved in. So questioning the role of alcohol, questioning the health of alcohol, and what does balance look like? So the convergence of things like the conversation around sleep, which is whether it's some of the apps people are wearing now to monitor their sleep, whether it's conversation about different caffeine alternatives, because coffee is getting people too jittery and keeping them up. They're such a turned on, hyped up nation in some of these urban spaces that sleep is becoming impacted. Anxiety. We've never had so many people seeking therapists or taking medication as well. So the conversation around mental health is huge. You've got this idea of optimizing your body's performance, which you see through people like Andrew Huberman or people hacking their own personal health. The question of alcohol, which is a ritual that is so deeply rooted. It's so innate to culture across the world. I think 7,000 years ago was the first BC, is the first recorded alcoholic spirit in China that they have on record. I mean, that's how old the ritual is of coming together over alcohol. But we have more science now, and we have a lot of questions about our health, and we want to live longer. You know, there's that guy I've been following who wants to live forever. But alcohol is a toxic. It's toxic to your system. And so we just have to understand just like there's other stuff that we consume that are not healthy, but we consume them in moderation. That really is the conversation that people are having. I want to have a good time. I want to be here for longer. I've seen the fragility of my health and my health, the health of others. And cancers are only increasing. The cures are increasing as well, which is amazing. But there's so many new cancers and we're all looking for answers. And one thing we can modify is the amount of alcohol we're consuming. So that's the great convergence. And we're seeing when those convergences come together, when it's global, and the numbers are not lying, and it's generational, those are big shifts to really watch. So the stats I, I often refer to are like in Japan, the government put out a plea to younger drinkers, kind of under like millennials and Gen Z, to submit ideas 
to encourage people to drink more alcohol. They were losing so much on taxation. In Canada, they've recently redesigned the weekly regulation for recommendation for alcohol consumption down to two drinks a week for a man. And it was 12. So Europe is now kind of looking at Ireland who are setting a new standard for putting cancer warnings on alcohol packaging, like they did tobacco. And Europe is looking at that or possibly rolling it out across Europe. French wine industry has been in decline for a number of years. So these are global trends. That's what makes it big. And you see athletic brewing as like a billion dollar potential company. People realizing there's not a sacrifice in the taste and the ritual, which for so long there was. You were socially ostracized, so the ritual was gone. You didn't feel confident in yourself. You felt like an outsider and less than. And that's you know a massive issue for a category. And secondly, they didn't taste very good or they didn't look good. So that's what we're changing. We're changing the idea that you can still have the ritual. You can still enjoy people's company. Actually, you can be more in tune with the conversation, more open, more honest, more vulnerable, which is, again, another kind of piece in the Brené Brown TED Talk world of showing your vulnerability, being accessible, being honest, rather than performing. I think that's where, you know, you look at where these trends come from. Instagram was this whole idea of we have filters, we have an artificial self, we're not really the person you think you're engaging with. And alcohol helps you be that artificial self. And people, you know, whether it's dating culture, this idea of sober dating, so you can completely have an honest conversation with someone, we're looking to strip back the artificiality and get to know the real person. And with non-alcoholic beverages, you can have a cool bar, you can sit with your friends, you can have a great night and not have to hide and not be a different version. You can be the honest version of yourself. Yeah, I think you're right. With a big uh, shift, such a with an event like the COVID and, and the pandemic, I think there's a greater understanding and appreciation for time, which is driving a lot of this, right? And also the health and everything and well-being. So I'm curious, as you're seeing numbers decline in terms of consumption, are you actually seeing it diversifying in terms of a broader types of consumption, even though the overall consumption might be going going down, but people are broadening the types of alcohol or drinks that they're actually broadening their horizon to? Well, in the alcohol space and in the US, it's a very spirit-driven market. It's the most advanced spirit-driven market in the world. And actually, beer and wine have been declining over the last decade as spirits have been increasing. And what's been really interesting there has been the rise of agave. So agave, which becomes tequila or similar style mezcal, has been on a tear for the last couple of years and will continue to grow for the next decade pretty exponentially. And there's definitely a health halo from the word agave, from agave nectar, from the idea that it's a plant-based sugar. It grows in these wild kind of desert fields in somewhere that's very natural, like the highlands of um, Jalisco and Mexico. And so just those semiotics of that plant-based beverage feel healthier. And then you get people saying, and really believing, oh, I don't have a hangover when I just drink tequila. It's a cleaner alcohol experience. Oh, it's the only alcohol I drink because it's keto-friendly. Do you hear those things in culture? If they're true or not, people want to believe them. And so agave has been and will continue to be the biggest growing category because people think it's healthier alcohol. So that category has seen major change. At the same time, or you know, in parallel, you've seen the rise of non-alc beer. So beer is the biggest consumed category by volume in the U.S., in more advanced markets like Germany, where there was a huge beer market, 24, 25% of beer consumption now comes from non-alcoholic beer. They've been making good quality or the finest quality non-alcoholic beer for decades. And actually, Americans are trying to take their, like use their high standard to make American style beers. 
that are non-alcoholic, but we're just starting here in the U.S. And as I referenced before, Athletic Brewing, but also Heineken Zero, Guinness Zero, they're doing really, really well on trying to kind of give people options. And that's all it really is. Give people options in the same moment. And so most of you are seeing the shift to non-alcoholic beer, agave. There's botanical vodka, which I referenced before, was you know, a product I worked on in the vodka space with people looking for cleaner, healthier alternatives. Non-alk wine still has much opportunity, but there's a few brands who are kind of trying to crack that space. The taste trade-off is quite high for people who are wine, real regular wine drinkers. So it's about kind of reframing that it's not exactly the same taste. Beer has been able to mimic quite the same taste. So Guinness Zero versus a Guinness traditional, I guess. It's hard to tell the difference. With wine, it's just more difficult to replicate all the nuances of wine in a non-alk version. But one day we will, and that will be a huge category. And then you get down to non-alk spirits and then down to us non-alk RTDs, ready to drink cocktails, which is the smallest part of the category, but the fastest growing. So 214% growth last year and predicted to continue to grow really fast for the next decade. So you're starting to see those shifts. I mean, the biggest shift and the thing that will game change everything is how the gatekeeper is so for us, that's bars and restaurants or liquor stores and grocery stores will look at incorporating these drinks and educating consumers. Because first of all, there's building awareness. People don't even know this category exists. Even people I've met, this category is absolutely for them. They've got an alcohol allergy. They haven't been drinking for decades. They don't even know this category exists. And that's usually people over 40, honestly. People 21 to 35 or 21 to 39, they're quite aware. They're quite curious. And so they're they're open to the idea. They've definitely heard of it. So the first point is awareness. And then it's showing them where they can access it. So on menus, which is the most exciting place where I see innovation and I'm always studying menus, is you know finding that section that says, Maybe it says mocktails, maybe it says virgin, maybe it says non-alcoholic, lighter spirits, no hangover, whatever. People are trying to be creative with how they pull it out on menu. But once those drinks come to the table and they look gorgeous and, you know, they're charging about the same price as an alcoholic cocktail, people start waking up to the idea, this is possible. This looks good. And, oh, I actually don't feel as bad the next day. Or, wait a second, I want to stay at this restaurant and still have this moment but I don't want to be compromised to my yoga class the next morning or I have a big meeting or I'm dropping the kids to school or whatever. And, and that is the critical piece. And then I can go to my liquor store, my grocery store, and I'm shopping, you know, the vodka spirits aisle or a beer. And then I see the non-alk section and labeling and signposting is so important. And we don't have that so much in the US. In the UK, they're further ahead. Waitrose just put in a, a section demarcated with a color blue to help navigation to say, oh, that's the non-alk section. But the data Nielsen just released last week said 94% of people who are buying non-alcoholic products also drink alcohol. And that's the big aha for people. They're like, wait a second, this is not just people who don't drink at all. Because that is 40% of the US population. That is a huge opportunity in its own right. They don't drink at all. That's you know how they would have filled out that form. But really, it's the rest of the market, the 60% who drink alcohol, 94% of them are seeking non-alcohol alternatives in addition to alcohol. So it's for the second drink of the night or the first drink of the night or the Monday to Thursday night drinking or the sober Sunday drinking or the month they're taking off for training for a marathon or dry January. So many occasions when people, everybody can choose to not drink alcohol, but we haven't really as adults had an alternative, a credible, an exciting, a sophisticated alternative until now. So tell me about Parch and uh, what it is you want to accomplish with Parch. 
Parch is kind of one of those accidental projects, brands, people that come across your path and it becomes the most exciting thing that you think the market needs. And it becomes this vision of how you can actually create a better environment, a better world for drinking. So it's now become quite a big thing. It started off with a very tragic, sad occurrence with my business partner who was working in the industry for about 14 years, working at the largest beer company in the world, running the agave portfolio. So that's tequila and mezcal. And he was diagnosed with a very aggressive, life-changing form of cancer. He went through two years of aggressive treatment, cut out alcohol in those two years and came out healed, pretty healthy after aggressive treatment, but decided to optimize his health. And part of that meant for him removing alcohol. It wasn't on doctor's orders. It was his own decision that I want to be around to see my kids live their lives. I want to be the best, healthiest version of myself. And removing alcohol was his choice. And he quickly realized what a social sacrifice that was. And he missed the ritual and the taste and the craft and the cocktails that came with that. I make brands for people and we had briefly encountered each other at Diageo, where we worked together in different teams. But he came to me, you know, here's my idea. I want to create a non-alcoholic option for adults. And I've been working in the no and low space for about five years. That's where I was building out the, the portfolio for Diageo and like, what would the next 10 years look like? And none of those brands really spoke to me as a consumer. And so actually what Rudy, Rodolfo Aldana, he's my business partner, what he gave me was a great gift. He calls it a gift for himself, that this gift of part came out of a huge tragedy. But what he gave me was this questioning of the role of alcohol in my life. And I wanted to make parch to be a drink that I would be proud to drink, that my friends would be proud to drink, that I'd be proud to give to people and never feel like make an excuse that it doesn't have alcohol in it. I wanted to be as proud of it as I was bringing a lovely spirit or canned alcoholic cocktail to someone's house. And to do that, we really had to interrogate all parts of the offering. We wanted to build something from the ground up. A lot of people are exploring de-alcoholizing liquids. We don't believe that that's good for the planet or the consumer because the taste still isn't as great as the alcohol product. At the same time, a lot of non-alcoholic products are primarily water or grape juice. We didn't want that either. So we went back to the plants and went back to the agave. And we found ourselves in the Sonoran Desert, which is an incredible ecosystem that traverses southwestern United States. So primarily Arizona and Southern California and the northern region of Mexico. And right there in the Sonoran Desert, it's rainfall twice a year. So it's incredibly biodiverse. We found this little agricultural museum called the Mission Garden. I was road tripping in the pandemic with my family at the time. And it's this kind of micro haven of arid adapted crops, indigenous plant species and transplanted plants from across the same kind of geography, but in near Morocco, Iran, Persia. So it has the same climate, parts of the Middle East and Southern Spain. And then they've taken different plantings from Europe and the Middle East, and they've thrived in this arid region that has biannual rainfall. So we're working there with an ethnobotanist, Jesus Garcia. We've leaned into the culinary adage of what grows together, goes together, because biodiversity is so important to us. And we look at what plants coexist around other plant species as we try and create cocktail recipes that you know will connect with consumers and also obviously taste good. So part starts with agave at its core. That's a testament to you know Rudy's journey, something that I love drinking when I do drink alcohol, and the fastest growing alcohol category in the US. And then we look at desert botanicals that grow in that region and desert fruits like prickly paloma, which is the hero ingredient or prickly pear, which is a hero ingredient in our prickly 
Paloma. So it is all plant-based. It is gluten-free. It is vegan. It's got all healthy, recognizable ingredients on the back of pack, which is another thing with non-alcoholic products. They're treated more like a food product. You have to show all the ingredients and nutritional facts. On alcohol beverages, you can hide all that. You don't have to reveal anything that's in your product, additives, calories, which is crazy to me. So we're very transparent and we're proud of what we put in there. So you know what you're putting in your body. And then lastly, we know people drink alcohol to relax, but we just don't want to put more toxins in your body. We want to give you healthy, stress-boosting ingredients. So we use adaptogens, so ancient herbs that are recognized for their ability to help the body handle stressful situations. They're not an instant fix. They're not going to put you to sleep. They're not going to get you high. But we use L-theanine, ashwagandha, and American ginseng, levels of 185 milligrams per can. And over time, they do help your body chill and mellow out. So what's been the response to the concept, but also the taste? I mean, packaging is is a passion point of mine. We were fortunate enough to work with wonderful designers, the Young Jerks, and packaging is the first point of interaction a consumer has. So the first thing people say is, I love the packaging. We have such amazing feedback on the packaging. It's pretty eye-catching. It's designed to be sophisticated. It's packed with information, but it was a very fine balance of not overloading people and confusing them. So the hierarchy and the taste cues and everything is really important. But the first thing people say is the packaging is amazing. And then they taste it. And we've been blown away by the response. I mean, our Instagram is kind of where we... Our Instagram and then sampling in stores would be the two main places we interact with consumers as well as sponsoring a lot of events. And people are like, I never thought non-alcohol tastes this good. It's my new favorite beverage. Are you sure there's no alcohol in here? This is incredible. You've changed my life. I mean, people have gone all the way to say, you know, this has honestly saved my life because I was drinking so much and now I have an alternative. I've had someone the other day saying, I fell in love with my partner over our mutual love for Parch and we're getting married in a year. That was amazing. But incredible support. Yeah, I mean, the stories, people are very honest and they're incredibly vulnerable um, in sharing these stories because the non-all category and alcohol category primarily has caused so much heartache and pain to so many people. And people are really suffering with kind of how their body and how their mind interact with alcohol. And there hasn't been enough kind of talked about in that space. So we're really solving a problem, which when it comes back to insights and connecting with consumers, no one needs another whiskey or a vodka or a tequila. You know, I always love looking at the packaging and looking at the stories that people have. And I still enjoy alcohol. I love going to the distilleries. There's so much craft but we don't need more. The shelves are already weighed down with so many. But what they do need is alternatives because they don't need to drink every night and they don't need to drink a whole bottle in a night. So, you know, that's how I was drinking wine. I was drinking a bottle with my partner every night, seven nights a week. And that was crazy, but it was a ritual. And it felt like that's when I was an adult. I switched off after work. I had a glass of wine. Soon I had two and it was a Wednesday and he had two and we're polishing off a bottle every night. And so now I have parch. In my life, I drink 70% less alcohol. Primarily, I don't drink during the week or during the weekends. I'll start with a non-alcoholic beverage, move to like maybe a full-out beverage and finish the night with like a half-proof beverage or a mid-proof if I'm out for a few hours. So I'm curious, are you positioning Parch as 
a different ritual against the ritual? Are you positioning it in terms of non-alcohol or actually the health benefits? Because lots of different angles here. And maybe you're still trying to figure it out. That's okay too. But there's lots of different ways to position this. And I'm kind of curious because ultimately you are still, I think, up against a ritual, right? That's been passed down throughout the ages. And I'm curious, where are you seeing lots of daylight? We like to say it's an ancient ritual for modern drinkers because we do use these ancient techniques of agave harvesting, adaptogenic herbs, infusing botanicals, macerating fruit. They're all how alcohol has been made over the years. But the modern drinker and the modern rituals are about this kind of awakening and being focused in the moment and connecting with people without being your artificial self. So that's the modern drinker just looking for balance. It really goes against alcohol, but it's a compliment too. So we say we're not anti-alcohol, we're pro-moderation, and we're advocates for information. We want people to be the best informed. They can then make their own choices, but we need to be in the rooms. We need to be on the back bar. We need to be on the menu. We need to be on the shelf so they can make that choice. They can have, I mean, we imagine, and we're not quite there yet because we've only started having conversations with liquor stores, but you buy a bottle of tequila and you buy a four pack of parch. And you can either have your alcoholic beverage and then have a non-alc one, or you can have your alc on a Friday, your non-alc on a Monday through Thursday. The key ritual is that switching off at 6 p.m. from your work day moment to your me time moment, or you're connecting with your significant other or roommates or whatever it might be. But that me moment is so important. And that's the sacrifice that we so many products that were just dumbed down, artificial, sweet kind of mocktails. We're never mocking the category. We're absolutely respecting the category of bartenders. I kind of, I'm obsessed and I love bartenders and love their creations. And it came from that point. It came from my level cocktails, but I still wanted to have something that was delicious, complex, well-made, and I could be proud to put it on the table. So we are trying to steal moments from alcohol because it's better for society and better for humans, but we're always going to be alongside alcohol at the same time. Yeah, but I think you hit them on something. I think even a lot of my friends, they're not saying, I don't want to drink as much. I don't want to lose the next day. I don't want to feel bad. And I think a lot of people get to the point where they want to control their mind, their body, as opposed to being out of control. So I suspect there's a lot of that in play, but you don't actually address that directly. So I'm curious, how do you get at that? You're right. I mean, it is that control, but we don't want to have had to live their lives. It's very much presenting it in the world. And if you see our Instagram or our website, it's presented in this culinary environment with food, socializing. It feels very much like a cocktail, any cocktail that you'd see in a bar. So how do we get at that? We insert ourselves into so many fun social events. So they're all adult events. And a lot of people come to us. So we've done bingo nights, we've done pride roller disco, we've done beach cleanups, we've done surf parties, we've done run like mountain runs in the desert, we've done dinner parties in the desert, we've done with Tucson Doobie, which is a, a cannabis publication in Arizona, we've done infused dinners with cannabis, and we've done the complimentary beverage post kind of workout. And then with our partner Daybreaker, which is the largest sober dance party in the world. We, after their three-hour yoga disco marathon, we kind of finish with with a parch, depending on if it's morning or evening. So we've got a whole span of kind of activities, and that's the really exciting thing. We can be at all these activities because we are non-alcoholic, and people in these moments are so relieved to find something that doesn't have alcohol. They've just done something healthy or fun or bonding. There may be a beer there as well, but they're so excited to see that there's something delicious incredible to connect and bond over and have in their hand. At the simplest, it's just about in a social scene, 
not having something or having something in your hand and not being left empty. And so many people, a bottle of water never sufficed until liquid death came along and did that for them. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, I had a podcast where I talked about liquid death and how what they've done with water is pretty amazing. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. Yeah. And, you know, a big community for us is the music industry and the cocktail industry. So hospitality, people who have drunk a lot of alcohol. Me too. I mean, I'm in the industry as well. I spent 20 years enjoying a lot of alcohol. And I realized I just don't need them. I've tasted all those things. They're delicious. I'll treat them a bit more with respect and restraint. But I still want to go out and go to concerts um, and have fun. I want something in my hand, want something that I enjoy. And whether that's water or a parch, happy to be there as well. Well, I think you're doing something very interesting. And I think it's very smart. And that is you're actually still associating your drink with fun. Then you're still serving and recommending serving it as a cocktail, right? Or like a mocktail. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that the thing is part of that ritual is ultimately people just want to have fun, whether it's alcohol or not alcohol. You want to have fun. And then I think you can subtly play upon aspects of, you know, stay in control, be happy, be healthy. But still, that doesn't mean you have to give up your fun. The ritual of fun is still there. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, people are very excited that this sober curious movement is over-indexing with Gen Z. I mean, a lot of brands would kill to have Gen Z or even young millennials being the ones at the forefront of their brands. That's kind of what builds the next generation of brands. And we have this natural movement with kind of that under 39. We skew a little bit older, like 25 to 39. But the conversation amongst 21 to 29-year-olds about like alcohol as the new tobacco is kind of amazing. They have so many different places to go. I talk about this a lot. You know, when I was younger, (laughs) when I was in my 20s or if I wanted to hang out with someone, it's like, let's get a drink. Let's go to the bar. And whether it was Dublin or London or Australia or New York, it's like, let's get a drink. That's what you did. Then it became coffee culture for about the last decade. And you could go to a coffee shop and you could have your meetings, your catch-ups, your hangouts there. But there hasn't really been that third space where you can go somewhere that caffeine cuts off for a lot of people after 12. They don't want to consume it after a certain time point. The places became kind of offices and they didn't become as cozy and dark and intimate as bars. They became kind of practical. And bars were so dark and steamy and, you know, bad things went on sometimes, especially with Me Too and overconsumption. They became a bit too illicit. But there hasn't really been... And then restaurants, obviously, were this other place that were kind of expensive. That was kind of a commitment to go for a meal. But just to get a drink somewhere, to hang out without the obligation to drink alcohol, that hasn't existed, which is kind of crazy. And so people, younger people, have decided to go rock climbing or go surfing or paddle boarding or, you know, play pickleball, like finding these communities where they can connect and then maybe go for, you know, have a drink afterwards, whether it's a a functional beverage or a probiotic soda or something else. But that's what's exciting. There's a whole new way to socialize. that's not just going to the pub. So what do you see as the future with, again, with what you're doing and and even more into the non-alcoholic space? Yeah, well, we are super excited about the future. I mean, like I said, we're only just one year old, so we're just scratching the surface, but we are available in 46 states and in Canada. And with non-alc, we can ship everywhere. So that's really exciting. We need to see non-alc credibly represented on menus everywhere, almost mandated, and not soda and water. So the leading edge bars, leading edge cities are starting that, but I want that to be a mandatory thing that everywhere you go, there are credible non-alc options. I mean, the crazy thing here in this country is so many people drive that the fact that it's not mandatory already is insane. You've got serious, you know, DUI 
implications, yet the alternative is just soda and we know how bad soda is for you. So why? And then it's just water. So give adults something that they can feel excited about. So getting it on menus, getting availability, educating people and bartenders about this category and then make it available to purchase. What's your biggest challenge with the restaurants and bars? Is it uh, the offering or is it actually the margins? I'm just curious. For parks, there isn't really... The only issue is making enough fast enough. We're currently out of stock. So we don't currently have an issue. For you, I mean, for the retailer, like I assume, I mean, when the retailer charges it in a restaurant, is it equivalent to a cocktail or less or more? They are often. I was somewhere last night in Midtown and it was $13 for their non-alcohol and 17 for their alcohol. And they were, they were two, there was two on the menu that were lovely. So you're definitely seeing it get started. Hilton just brought in a program across majority of their hotels called like Tempo, I think it was. And it was low and light alcohol, or low and no alcohol beverages across. So it's happening, but it's still not mainstream. And it's like one or two drinks. I mean, I was at a a restaurant somewhere else recently and it was only soda and water, even though it was quite a cool restaurant. So the margins are absolutely there. It's still just about the education. And once you put it on the menu, the pull, the consumer pull is absolutely there. Because I always ask the wait staff, you know, how is this selling? Do you have much demand for this? And they always say yes. But I've been at another well-known restaurant in LA and they only had alcohol. And it was in the middle of LA. And it was so bizarre to me that in LA, you've got only alcohol on your menu. And I said, do people ask for, for NA? And I said, all the time. I said, why don't you offer? It's like, oh, our beverage director doesn't believe in us. <laughs> so you still get these holdouts who are, it's likely a generational thing, honestly. If I speak to traditionally older white men or just older men in general, and my dad was one of these, which is like, what's the point? What's the point of alcohol without without the alcohol port you know that's so if you've got decision makers at those levels they have to see it and sometimes they do and i have these conversations with distributors sometimes they see it through their kids they're like actually yeah you know my daughter was over with her friends and they're not really drinking anymore and then you see different markets so colorado just this nielsen report that came out last week was listed the second biggest market for non-alc and that may and california was the first and that may very well have an interaction with the cannabis culture that's you know been growing there quite fast. So we do see those things changing and that will be quite pervasive. So there's not really a barrier. It's just education, awareness, and quality of products. There's not that many good quality products out there yet. It's continuing to change. There's a lot of new entrants. We can t- constantly hear that we're a huge favorite of a lot of people, especially bartenders. But the biggest barrier across the entire category is distributors. We can't get into alcohol distributors because we're a non-alcoholic product. And the non-alc food and bev distributors can't get us into liquor stores. So there's a weird disconnect because of the three-tier system that's unique to the U.S. We can get into natural grocery stores on food trucks, but we can't get into liquor stores because we're only on those food trucks. So we need to work through alcohol distributors, yet we are not alcoholic product. I'm hopeful that will change too. And the rest of the future, I mean, for Parch, is really exciting. We've got our third cocktail coming out in November. We've got our first collaboration coming out next year. We've got spirits coming out next year as well. Yeah, we're super excited. We're expanding more into Canada. We've got plans to expand globally. And the demand is absolutely there. We need to really push into the on-premise more. And that's simply just an issue of being able to keep up with demand. So how much is your marketing towards consumers to pull these into the restaurant versus having the restaurants Push it to the consumers. So the majority of our efforts go to marketing to the consumer, but we tried Instagram, Facebook, Google. The pricing is just crazy for the ROI that doesn't make sense. So instead, we try and insert ourselves into these cultural moments that fit the consumption occasion. 
events. Yeah. And then, you know, people can close that loop by purchasing a, a natural grocery. Honestly, we have so many bartenders, restaurateurs reaching out to us to put us on the menu because they've had us at an event or people have come in asking for it. So we're looking at this idea of events first, then distribution through natural groceries. So we're in Whole Foods in Southern California, Sprouts. We were in Sprouts. We're in about a thousand stores overall across the country. And word of mouth recommendation, people are asking for us in on-premise or they've tried samples at an event and they're like, I really want this on my menu. I got two people reaching out yesterday. You know, I need to have this on my new restaurant on opening. And so there's just a lot of that word of mouth. And that's what we really pride ourselves on because the liquid has to speak for itself and people have to, you know, really stand by something. And the people who are recommending us are usually food snobs or cocktail snobs. And that, that works. That's exactly the crowd we're trying to attract. So I'm curious, if you were to have a, a drink or lunch, <laughs> not an alcoholic drink, of course, to anybody in industry, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. You know who I'd love to have a drink with? Jack from The Dead Rabbit. Dead Rabbit has been voted one of the best bars in the world. He's an Irish guy. The two purveyors are Irish guys. So not a huge celebrity. I find the celebrities too intimidating, honestly. So I wouldn't be able to have a good conversation with him. I do get nostalgic for my home country often. So I love good banter with an Irish person. But The Dead Rabbit is an incredible bar. It game changed kind of the perception of Irish bars anywhere in the world. It was the world's best bar of years in a row. But he doesn't drink alcohol anymore. What makes it the best? I mean, the quality of their menu was unsurpassed. It was this incredible comic book. Actually, it changed all the time. The sophistication of the drinks, the decor was insane. It was such attention to detail. And they had three different bars within the same building, very old building downtown. Is this in Dublin? Uh, where is it in Dublin? No, no, this is in New York. This is in Manhattan. So, but the interesting thing for me is he, the owner, doesn't drink alcohol anymore and for a number of years. And he was quite open about that, which I just think it's very interesting as someone who I think could lead this high awareness that makes impeccable cocktails the best in the world, yet doesn't drink alcohol. There is that duality that people who really understand the, cat the, the danger and risk of alcohol just doesn't agree with some people and it brings out the worst in other people. It's a very fine line. And we wouldn't always work, but I know I'd get a really good cocktail out of it and we'd be able to to have great banter and chat. That's someone who came to mind. Sounds interesting. Well, I think you're definitely onto something. I think people are looking for more choice. And I think this is going to become more and more of a focus for individuals as they get older. And, you know, it just seemed so. And I think there is the focus that we talked about earlier on health, well-being and being in control, but not giving up the fun. And I think that's great that you're offering fun, but uh, don't, you can do it without the alcohol. Yeah, and the intrigue of the flavors. We want to give people taste they haven't tasted before as well. I mean, that we've never had more choice in food and flavor. And like I said, I live in a culinary kind of mecca of New York. But each drink, when I'm working on developing them and tasting them, I want it to be something I haven't tasted before. It's like a little bit of something familiar and something intriguing, and I can't quite put my finger on it. Because we're not trying to mimic the margarita, the Paloma. We're trying to put our own spin on it and bring in some new ingredients and often some ancient ingredients that have always been around but haven't been so widely available to people. So for our upcoming cocktails we're using sonoran sea salt that's wild harvested from the bay of cortez across all our products i've always loved using salt in cocktails it just brings all the flavors together obviously with agave spirits it's pretty familiar to have salt with them anyway but we're putting the salt into the beverage and this is a mi highly mineral rich salt really low in sodium and it just adds that kind of magic to each of our liquids 
I think hitting all the buttons, taste, fun, and a great story behind it too, which is really good. So I'm, I'm looking forward to trying it. I actually haven't tried it yet, but I'm looking forward to trying it. And I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today and sharing your aha moments and looking forward to seeing where Parch goes next. Thank you so much, Darshan. Great chatting with you. Thank you very much. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.